Newsweek presents The Debate with Andrew Tolman. Everything 100% of the time, 24 hours a day is a negotiation. Rakeem Brooks. This is a common good that we are talking about. Amani wells on Yoha. I'm completely fed up with whether it's politicized or not. And Jeff Charles. That distracts us from actually rolling up our sleeves. The Debate starts now. Y'all already know how I feel about gun rights and the Second Amendment. Now... A couple weeks ago, we had a situation in New Mexico where the governor, Governor uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham, decided that she would take it upon herself to basically ban the carrying of firearms in the city of Albuquerque for a 30 day period. Now, this was ostensibly in response to a wave of gun related violence that was happening in the city, including the the murder of an 11 year old child. Always very heartbreaking and sad. And she issued this order thinking that it was going to curb gun violence. And that got a huge backlash from the community and from the rest of the nation. Uh, It was from where I said it was a brazen violation of the Constitution and of the right to keep and bear arms. And on top of that, most of these laws that people uh, that people support don't actually do much to decrease gun violence. So, again, there was a huge backlash. There was a huge rally that they had in Albuquerque where people showed up with their firearms in defiance of the order. The Bernalillo County Sheriff said that he wasn't going to enforce the order. The state attorney general said that he would not prosecute people arrested under this order. And later, maybe about a week and a half, two weeks later, she basically the governor rescinded most of the order. And then it just now just applies to parks and places like that. But there's already been injunctions filed against it. There's court challenges. So total success. Yeah. Huge win (laughs) for the governor. It went out very well, didn't it? Unadulterated victory. Perfect. Yeah. So so I wanted to see see what you guys think about this whole thing. I mean, I don't I don't know if any of you are, are gun owners like me, but what do you think? Now, y'all know I'm the opposite. I'm the advocate for gun control. So I do think it was a good idea. The problem is you can't just blatantly or blatant, blatant. I kind of like blatantly. Thank you. Blakely. Yeah, go with it. We're going to use today. You can't just unilaterally. How about that? That's a better word. Decide that there are no guns allowed across the entire city. So I think that's where she went wrong. Like the energy was there. We appreciate your spirit. Okay. Your heart was in the right place. I see what you were trying to do. But there has to be a more uh, strategic way to do it without trumping all over people's rights because just like with a lot of this other stuff, once you start doing things for your cause, you don't want to give it the okay to start just doing things for your cause on the other side, right? So we have to be mindful of that when we're trying to pass laws, even laws that we believe in. So I think she should have really took her time to figure out a way to roll this out in a way that would protect the community, that would try to correct for some of the spikes in gun violence that they're seeing, but at the same time still respect the Second Amendment because at the end of the day, it is a constitutional right and she doesn't have the power alone to remove that herself. Can I paraphrase you, Amani? Bless her heart. You <laughs> I think that's the that's the southern perspective on this is bless her heart, which is another way of saying, oh my God, you fool. Or like how how does how does a governor get the idea that she can suddenly decide for an entire city of people that the constitution doesn't apply here? Even even in a situation where you have uh, a a declared state of emergency over gun violence, which is kind of a a weird little asterisk type uh, declared state of emergency. I mean, let's imagine that it was a, you know, a tornado, okay, or an earthquake or something like that. 
even mm-hmm. in a situation where there's total social disarray, maybe there's even rioting. Who knows? I mean, pick your worst scenario. Even under that circumstance, even with the most robust picture of gubernatorial police powers, I still don't think a governor has the authority to say, nope, no guns here. <laughs> it just, you know, no. you'd, you'd have she to have what's... some kind of other process, some legislative mandates, you know, something else. You can't just up and decide on a Tuesday to say, you know, there's only nine amendments in the Bill of Rights anymore. You know, and, and that kind of echoes a lot of the criticism that even people on the left were making about this order. I mean, when you have David Hogg, who was very anti-gun, Representative yeah. Ted Luke from California, who was very anti-gun, saying that this ain't it, Governor, you, yeah. you know you messed up. <laughs> well what do you all think motivated this then because it seems so obviously unconstitutional great question Uh, of course of course there was public outcry after the murder of the 11 year old child i think you said jeff so was it just that that she thought you know enough is enough i've got to do something about this i've got to send a signal i mean the funny part about it to me is that you know, all these people went out and bought guns afterwards, which I'm sure they thought was such a great sign of protest. And maybe you do too, Jeff, except now I think we know who all the lunatics are in the state of Arizona. And as a <laughs> gun control advocate myself, I'm also like, well, that's good to have that registry, which is, of course, the biggest <laughs> fear that many people on the right have. But in any case, uh, what what led to this? Because as you say, it doesn't, I don't know, she seems like a decently intelligent person. And so... I mean, do you think it's just a stunt? Is it a stunt? Did she did she think it was going to work? Was she just trying to make a show? I'm going to I'm going to do a crazy thing and I'm going to get some notoriety. And oh, what did I do? This was this was this was a feel good measure. I mean, let's look at the. I mean, crime in Albuquerque has actually been going down, especially violent crime. So even even if they were still higher. A measure like this is not going to keep anybody safe. You you don't attack gun violence by disarming responsible people who need to defend themselves if there's an increase in gun violence. So to me, that tells me that this is just a feel good policy to make it look like they're doing something when they're when they're really not. So that's the way I took it. I just think that she wanted to be able to say that she was a, a Democratic governor who was able to make an impact on gun reform because the party who advocates for this issue so hard hasn't really been able to pass much gun regulations or gun reform. So I understand her extreme approach being like, I'm going to be the one to do it. Maybe that was her logic in doing this whole thing was wanting to be the one who was able to break through the noise and pass some legislation that change, you know, how we discuss gun reform today. And maybe that was her goal. You know, let's play devil's advocate. Perhaps her goal in doing this was to get us all talking about ways to do gun reform the right way. Maybe she did it the wrong way to spark conversation. Well, Unfortunately, of this. course, what we're talking about the most is how dumb this while misguided, you know, and uh, as you said, you know, people on the left and the right and you just you when do you ever see agreement on the issue of guns from people across the spectrum? And that's that's amazing, frankly. It don't happen you know, often. But you know what the problem is? I mean, in terms of the agreement, when Republicans or conservatives are in the process of trashing the Constitution, I don't see other Republicans or conservatives saying, oh, my God, you're trashing the Constitution. They're like, you know, go after what it is we need in order to secure the kind of government that we want. But Democrats always do this. It's just like, well, we see a constitutional violation over something that we actually don't think is a constitutional violation, by the way. You know, 
Heller was just 2008. Prior to that, we had all sorts of national gun regulations. The Second Amendment was not just a disfavored right. It was it was, in fact, a stepchild in the Constitution, as it might well need to be again. But it just always strikes me that Democrats, you know, they could have just shut the hell up is really the point. (laughs) They didn't have to come out against her. They could have just sat there. Everyone said, like, this seems like a dumb idea, but let's just see what happens. Eat your popcorn and be quiet. See, no, I think I I think it was smart for them to come out, because if the ultimate goal is to disarm more people or make it harder for people to get firearms, when somebody goes overboard like that, you get a lot of people against you, even people who are on your side. So that was yet another reason why I think that strategically it was a bad move. Also, this did wonders for the pro 2A community. I mean, gun store owners in Albuquerque were reporting a very massive increase in the amount of people who bought guns because of this order. So she I mean. She she did us a favor. Oh, I mean, Jeff, so I can see, I can see my on the left would be against it. Yeah, this is my question though. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually bring this <laughs> from a good place. I am deeply skeptical, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. So one of the responses from the responsible gun owners are that you all are going to be the pistol toting folks when the real bad guys walk in the room. Right. And occasionally we've seen some news stories where someone's walked into a mall and attempted to inflict massive violence, like the case in Indiana. Right. And there was the guy who was the trained gun owner. But how often is this actually happening where we have the so-called responsible citizen disarming the irresponsible gun owner? Well, it's pretty. It, it depends happens. who you ask. Like, like if you no, ask, no, you know, if you, if, if you ask, is there something? Like, well, if you ask, like in the NRA or gun owners of America, they're going to say it happens millions of times a year. I mean, up to two million times a year is the number they. And the reason you don't hear a lot about it, it's not necessarily that the guy's got the gun, he's in the process of shooting, and you know, armed citizen with his you know eighteen hours this week at the range comes and shoots him and takes him down, but a brandishing or a you know uh, a warning shot or something you know you shoot and you miss but they run away that kind of stuff it happens and it doesn't get reported a lot of times because if you're the victim in that case the justified victim you're going to call the cops and explain to them how you used your gun or would you rather just be like hey you know he's gone i'm done we're all good let's go back home instead of me winding up being a news story winding up getting maybe charged with some improper discharge or something like that (laughs) Yeah. And by the way, that that data that you just talked about, Andrew, that comes from the CDC, a government or agency. There are plenty of studies show that defensive gun uses happen all the time. The most conservative estimate that I've seen is about 70,000 times per year. So a gun owner is more likely to use their gun to defend their life and property than they are to to victimize somebody. And what you said, Andrew, was true. A defensive gun use doesn't necessarily involve firing the gun. If somebody comes up to me with a knife and I pull my gun and he runs away, That's a defensive gun use because that wouldn't have happened if I didn't have my firearm on me. So it happens a lot more than people like to make it sound. And a lot of people don't know, know the data, even in cases of active shooter situations. uh, There was a report from the Crime Prevention Research Center that showed that in a lot of those cases, a big chunk of them, they was stopped by somebody who was on the scene who had a firearm. Got it. So there's a support circle somewhere for people who discharge their firearms where you all share these stories because <laughs> otherwise there is no collected data. Is that no, what I'm the, hearing? That is out there. You're just never going to really hear about it from a more left wing outlet. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've got I write about the data all the time, uh, even with, with, with news stories, which don't cover uh, even a fraction of these incidents. I'm writing about this stuff almost every two days in, in an incident where somebody uh, stops a home intruder or uh, somebody who's trying to carjack them. It, it actually happens all the time. 
Rakeem, right. this might actually help you. I Maybe it will. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, I have a concealed carry permit. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I have a Glock 43. It's a small. Okay. It's a six shot or depending. Anyway, it's a small gun. But I'm a small guy. Okay. And carrying concealed. And in Florida, you can't carry open. We, we are one of four states only that have no provision for open carry, which is weird, but true. Uh, and we now can carry without a permit, although I have one. Okay. Yeah, concealed. But it's inconvenient to carry concealed. It's uh, we wear shorts and T-shirts and flip flops. And, you know, where do you put that? Right. OK, so I've always found it inconvenient. But over the years, talking to my law enforcement friends and seeing the changes in community violence and stories about random shooting events at the grocery store or at the theater or the wherever, I basically told myself, you know, look, I hope this is the biggest waste of money and time that I ever have. And I hope that it's just plain inconvenience and I hope to God I never have to use it, but not just for my own sake, but for the sake of the other people in the theater or in the restaurant or the whomever, uh, wherever that, that aren't capable of defending themselves. I feel like I have an obligation to protect them. I know martial arts. I'm old. I'm not limber anymore. I probably couldn't use it all that well, but that is also a way of defending not just me, but other people. So to me, it's responsible citizenship given the level of criminality in the world. And I share just one quick story that that's really fascinating to me. Uh, I'm probably, I don't think I have the typical left view on this and that it's um, somewhat informed uh, by conversations I've had with people who actually are skilled gun owners. So in uh, one of my leadership professors um, in graduate school was a four-star general. And he reported to me that when he considered how he trained with his firearm and then thought about just how local police forces train with their firearms, that he thinks that the country is massively, uh, I don't know if illiterate is the right word, but kind of ill-equipped, undertrained, ill-performing with regard to how to use firearms effectively for one's own safety. And so in, that's where I'm asking the question, like, yeah, okay, you brandish the firearm, you shot, you fire a shot in the air. That doesn't require any aim whatsoever, I guess, other than pointing up, right? Whatever the, the nautical or degrees are necessary for that. But it seems to me that we have a lot of folks walking around, at least if his analysis uh, is to be taken at face value, that we have a lot of folks walking around who don't really know how to use these firearms very well, but are carrying them in all sorts of inappropriate ways. And uh, maybe to Amani's point about gun safety generally, if that's going to be, it seems to me we can go one of two ways. If everybody's going on a firearm, then let's mandate that you have to be trained in using it, right? You get it re-registered every time. You have to show that you know how to properly care for the firearm and so forth. Teach the kids in high school, you know, just uh, take them to the range and gym class. Sure. I'm with you. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like if we're, I'm with you, Rakeem, if we're going to live in a country where the second amendment exists, then I don't see the problem with creating regulations for that. I don't see the problem with making sure people know how to properly use it, properly brandish it, properly carry it, whatever the case may be. And making sure the people who have guns are not insane. Like when you just look at things as far as like domestic violence, for instance, a lot of women die at the hands of their partners and a lot of them could have been prevented from even having guns in the first place. If that history had been properly factored into their ability to get a gun in some places, it is. But in some places it isn't. There's a lot of ways that we can regulate who should have access. I think that is one thing that we can all agree with, I hope. Well, except that's the case going before the Supreme Court. <laughs> this fall. Oh, and it's, 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 an, it's an ugly case. That is a very ugly case. Yeah. I may disagree with Jeff on this. I don't know his position, but I, as an advocate for gun ownership, I am also uh, a fan of red flag laws. Uh, you know, they were very controversial when we came in here in Florida. Um, I think they've been very effective at keeping the guns out of many wrong hands and 
I think when you're talking about people who are reported to be, you know, we call it Baker Act, a uh, mental instability here in Florida. Uh, I don't have a problem with taking those people's guns away from them because I think that your your percentage chances at that point of doing good versus doing harm are really high. And there might be a few innocent people swept up in false allegations or whatever, but uh, that's worth the trade-off to me. So I actually like the red flag laws, but I know a lot of gun owners, Second Amendment advocates, really can't stand them, feel that they abuse. I see you nodding, Jeff. Is that true for you? Yeah, our concern is that they do get abused. Overall, I'm not a fan of red flag laws. But in certain cases, like say if somebody issues a threat or something like that, then I'm more concerned about it because now you've got somebody who's threatening to violate somebody's rights. It's actually illegal to threaten somebody. So in cases like that, I'm more lenient. But overall, I I think that that they can be a a huge problem and they can actually be used against victims of domestic violence. As a matter of fact, that has happened. So that means that that victim is disarmed, which makes it easier for their abuser to abuse them. And and to your point, Rakim, about the story that you told, I don't disagree. I think that's a big problem. In in the gun community, we do see that as a problem. People getting guns and not bothering to train with them regularly. I mean, when I first became a gun owner, I went and took a class. I got private instruction for an hour and a half, and I've taken other private instruction too, because I want to make sure that I know how to use my weapon if I need to, Um, because I could be putting other people in danger. So I do agree that that's a problem. When it comes to training requirements, though, The issue with that is that if you make those too lofty, which in a lot of cases they are, it negatively impacts disproportionately uh, economically uh, disadvantaged people because they're not able to take the time off of work to go to those classes. They're not able to to meet the cost requirements, especially in a place like Washington, D.C. There's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through. So that creates a situation where you only have basically well-to-do people who are able to carry firearms. But the people who actually need it most, who live in areas where there are high crime, they need it the most and they're not able to get it, which forces a lot of them to carry illegally and uh, possibly catch a case for that. So it, it, it ends up creating other problems as well. Bullets are expensive. <laughs> Training is expensive. Yes, it's are. absolutely it absolutely is. And, and but to your point, Rakeem, I, I would say this, too. Uh, it's not just the lack of training, uh, although I totally agree with Jeff. That is a rampant problem. It's a lack of understanding of the law. Again, as an advocate for concealed carry, um, people just don't know the law. Uh, They don't understand it. Uh, You've probably seen people, you know, if you get far enough away from the city, you might see people with signs up on their fence that say, you loot, we shoot, or, you know, um, you you come through here at the wrong time and it's going to cost you, that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. I, I am repeatedly in on the radio talking with my law enforcement and you know, sheriffs and stuff and telling people, look, you can only use lethal force if your life or limb is threatened or somebody else's is. If somebody is just, you know, breaking in and stealing your car. You cannot shoot them. But people don't know that. And so even lawful justified use of force or the threat of such is something that sadly a lot of people don't really understand. And that's a problem, too, for the argument of my side where more people ought to have guns because well, if they're not trained, they don't practice, and they don't know the law, that seems like a recipe for problems. I agree. Yeah, I mean, Absolutely. even you mentioned like firing a warning shot in a lot of states, that's illegal. But even if it's mm-hmm. not illegal, people in the gun community will tell you that's not a good idea, period, because you can end up hitting somebody. Yeah. Don't to hit. You fired it into the air, that bullet's going to come back down. So there is a lot of education that is that is still needed in general. So I, I don't disagree with that with that point. 
when I hear Andrew say kill or don't shoot, I'm like, the governor sounds more, sounds brighter and brighter to me every day. <laughs> no, but that's, that's the, that's the point is if you're not willing to kill the person, you shouldn't have your gun out in the first place. Yeah. And I that's think, what they always teach you. Yeah. I think the bottom line of the conversation is there is so much room for change in this arena. And I think we get so much caught up in the weeds of how to go about it, that nothing happens at all. And we end up in the same perpetual conversations over and over and over again, as far as what to do about the issue. So I think no matter what side of the table you sit on the issue, could we provide more training? Yes. Could we provide more regulations? Yes. Do we need to make sure that people who have the right are able to access their weapons in a way that protects them legally, but also protects the people around them and make sure that they're safe enough to have a gun? Yes. There's so much that needs to be done. And I what frustrates me is that Congress and all the other people who are supposed to be doing something, just propose something. And that's why I'm not going to crap on our good governor too hard because that queen tried. OK, she did her best, but she thought made sense in her I head. She, did her she best, tried bitch. to progress she tried. the conversation forward. OK, yeah. and that's all we can hope for. The point you make is a really good one, which is I think there's a cultural dimension to this. Even I mean, I've yeah. been just by the idea that, you know, if you're not ready to kill the person, you shouldn't pull the guns. Andrew and I both have practiced martial arts. There's no martial art that teaches you that the only reason you should employ your martial art is if you're willing to kill someone. It's actually you employ your martial art for the purposes of subduing the person in the first instance. And so if we have these weapons where people are telling you that the only the only reason you should draw it is to kill the person. You if have you're to be willing, willing if to you're, go you to should be willing stand. to. Yeah, you should be willing to. But I'm just saying, I mean, you have this uh, more extensive background, I think, in martial arts than I do. And I, but I have family members who've trained. I've never heard of any martial art, a self-defense tactic, beginning with that sentiment, which is I should only learn how to box if I'm willing to take your head off. I should only learn how to <laughs> kick if I'm willing to literally cave your chest in. I mean, in jujitsu, the idea is subsue and create distance. You know, but I will say that one thing that martial arts and uh, carrying firearms does have in common is that when you know both, you have a higher level of responsibility. So if you know martial arts right. and you know that you could potentially kill somebody if you mess up, I mean, like that situation on the subway in New York City, then you do have more of a responsibility to make sure that you use what you've learned responsibly. The same holds true of owning firearms. If you're going to carry, you are taking on extra responsibility. You have more of a responsibility to defuse a situation or to deescalate. Um, and you have more of a responsibility to get out of there. Like if, if I can run away from an attacker and I don't have to shoot him and I can get away, I'm going to do that. Right. And that's you. And that's what they teach you. And that's one of the reasons why I do worry about the lack of training, because people don't understand that the best fight you can ever be in is the one that you're not in, the one that you avoid. You have to exhaust every single option before you even think about pulling that firearm. Yeah. Run away is a great option, you know, and also uh, came to your point. Having the physical skill and strength and training, whatever, to be able to give a nuanced force response obviously is great. But what about the people who don't have that alternative and the years of training that it takes to be able to deliver that alternative? But, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, if if somebody's I mean, maybe even if all they've got is a knife, but certainly if all they've got is their hands. I'm going for a chokehold. <laughs> you know, that's a much more, you know, they're going to live. I'm going to live. Everybody's going to be okay. Um, but if they're coming at me with a shotgun, you know, <laughs> that's, it's, it's a much harder situation. And, you know, the average person who may not have any kind of training, what's their alternative? 
Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Okay, so everybody's favorite Congresswoman Lauren Boebert was out on the town with her new man, living her very best life and being a scandalous queen, a scandalous woman. Um, She went to go see the new Beetlejuice. (laughs) We're all dying. This is great. Go on. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Boebert. Oh, wow. Nice. And she decided that it was time to get her smoke on. Uh, She wanted to get rubbed (laughs) down, y'all, in front of the children. And as a family values conservative woman that she is, she tried to deny these accusations and allegations at first. And unfortunately, they caught her in 4K. Okay, with the put them lights on, caught it on film in 3D, getting rubbed up in the vicinity of kids. So my whole approach on this topic or the whole reason why I even want to discuss this is because I find great irony in her being caught in a situation like this, especially when she is one of the people who has been advocating against the LGBTQ community, talking about them indoctrinating children and why drag queens shouldn't be reading books to kids and all of this stuff we've been hearing some people in the Republican Party perpetuate lately. And I would just like to hear y'all's thoughts. Is Are we coming to a point where the irony and being hypocritical is just too far on display for us to ignore? Or are we going to continue to give these people a pass and let them pretend that they really stand on these values that they clearly don't actually care about in real life? They don't care, y'all. 18 years is a long, dry spell. Give the lady a break when she's finally set free. Okay, she's just she's just doing what you do. No, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Amani, I was inclined to be with you on this. And the more I thought about it, I just I want to use it as an object lesson and why I don't care about a politician's private life and they shouldn't care about mine. Rakeem, okay. no, <laughs> I know okay. we want to get into it and I know it's hypocritical, but I'm also just like, leave the. I mean, leave this woman alone. She's smoked. No. I mean, let all the necessary and appropriate the things happen. She should be banned from the theater. You know, she flipped the person off at the end. But the way we sort of we we don't give our elected officials any private space. And so I think we often are setting ourselves up for disappointment because everybody is a creep. Everybody's doing strange things that have nothing to do with their job. How dare you? So here she was. I know here she was having her night out. I know Monty's like, how did you turn on me so quickly? But I just, I just don't care. I, you know, it was like when they wanted to, I mean, listen, I think there are all sorts of problems with Donald Trump, but his love life was never what I was interested in. I didn't care about Stormy Daniels. I was like, you know what? If he left a dollar on the nightstand, God bless him and let's keep going. The real problem is he should not have control over the nuclear codes. He has shown no demonstrated capacity to be the commander in chief. So I don't know. No, My thing is this. If you have values, stand on those values. 
I wouldn't care if she wasn't advocating against that type of behavior around kids. I genuinely don't care. If you want to get rubbed up on in the movie theater, girl, do you. That's your choice. However, if you are going to talk about family values and doing stuff out of wedlock, if you're going to uh, be talking about having the ability to legislate on women's bodies and just all of these things that, yes, are personal decisions, which I agree. As somebody on the left, I agree that these are personal decisions that should be left alone, that the government should have no involvement in in a certain capacity. So that's where I stand on the issue is, no, I typically don't care what that woman does in her own everyday life. But if you're going to use those type of issues to legislate on, then you need to stand on what you say. See, here's my thing, because I am 100 percent where Rakim is. I had a friend ask me, you know, when, when the whole thing came out, he's like, when are we going to get back to normalcy or is this the new normal? I was like, what are you talking about? This has been normal since the politics was a thing. The difference is that now we have social media. So everybody knows about it. If this had happened 20 years ago, you might see some of that footage on CNN, Fox News and some others. Or but that's about grass. it. But now we live in the age of Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube. So everybody knows about it. So all we're seeing is what's already been happening for years. Politicians are hypocrites, pretty much all of them. It's the same idea when, you know, when they had the COVID mask mandates and you had all these Democratic politicians pushing them and then they get caught not wearing them when they were supposed to. These people don't believe a lot of what they say that they, they don't follow the the, the 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 standards that they put on us. They don't have to because they're members of the ruling class. So they can do whatever. Oh, the hell here we go. Jeff. I would tell you, right. hey, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama are good people. <laughs> <laughs> they are good people, but she just happens not to be one of them. I mean, about but, but they're, human, yes, though, right? they're human. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we got to stop putting these people on a pedestal just because they go to Washington. They wear nice suits and have nice smiles. Doesn't mean that they're not doing dirt. Mitt Romney's done dirt. Everybody has because everybody's human. So the, what we should be looking at is, are they doing what I want them to do? Are they voting the way I want them to vote? Are they legislating the way I want them to legislate? Because their personal lives in a lot of ways are, are going to be a mess. Some worse than others. Yes, definitely. But th- th- this is this is the way it is. This is reality. I find for me, the, the more the, the more troubling thing about this case, I mean, yeah, I actually agree with Amani to this extent that uh, for Lowen to, for Lauren to uh, be, you know, preachy and holier than thou and then to be her ordinary self and act like it's nothing. That's a hypocr- hypocrisy problem. I have a problem with that. But I have a problem more so with what I perceive as a kind of entitlement mindset with her. You know, she's misbehaving. That's where I was going next. Okay. Yep. She's uh, clearly not listening to the people behind her who are trying to correct her. She, you know, claims to be a Christian. And, you know, typically a Christian virtue is if somebody's criticizing you, then, oh, you know, okay, I can do better. I mean, when I'm in a theater, I'm trying not to offend anybody. I don't want to get in anybody's bad side. I want everybody to have a pleasurable experience, not the kind she was having, but, you know, just to have a, an enjoyable night, right? That's what I'm hoping for. And so if somebody gets angry at me, my first thought is, oh, okay, well, I don't need to have my camera out taking flash photography i don't need to be vaping i don't need to be engaging in you know the the dirty or whatever and so that'd be my response so when she not only gets confronted and doesn't change gets corrected by the attendants and flips one off and acts all you know self-righteous and then denies it all and continues to you know unspool these layers of lies where eventually she says in effect, I'm sorry I got lying, which is not the same as I'm sorry for being rude and lying about it. You know, that's where I have the problem. That's the real character issue here is the reaction to the event rather than the misbehavior during the event. 
But what about the people on the right who were defending her, though, Andrew? What what do you think? Because I don't want people to think that I condone what she did. I don't condone any of it. Uh, But I'm just saying this is what politicians do. But here's my thing. I mean, you've got the the party that says they're for family traditional values, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them are defending her while also criticizing Susanna Gibson in Virginia for having done, done pornography. So why defend this? Well, I think you get entrenched in your battle lines, right? You know, this is our person. Uh, Lauren Boebert has never been my person. Um, right. I, I mean, I, I just I find her, you know, thinly formed layer of uh, populist conservatism. It's just obnoxious to me. I I listen to her and I'm embarrassed for my cause because I don't think she's a good spokesman for it. So I don't come to this table feeling the need to defend her. Uh, mm-hmm. But I know a lot of people do. And so they feel yeah. like attacks on her are attacks on them. And so I just don't have that association with her in this case. It's it's bad behavior. It's it's this weird kind of hypocrisy. The fact that she's dating the guy who owns the bar where they do the pro pride and pro, you know, and drag shows and stuff and seems to not either not know it or acts like she doesn't know it. I mean, that's all kinds of weird. Maybe you can't change who you love or whatever, but that's weird, too. Right. She's fraudulent. And that's really my whole thing is stop aligning yourselves with frauds. Not you, Andrew, because you Andrew is a true conservative, y'all. He believes what he says Aww. he believes. And that is my problem. <laughs> I believe you, Andrew. I believe you're a good guy. And this is just your beliefs. And that's OK. My problem is these people are pretending that this person aligns with them. And she clearly <laughs> she doesn't, y'all. I think she's pretending to be a Republican, maybe because she likes the attention, maybe because it was easier for her to win elections that way. I don't really know what the truth is. But like you're saying, Jeff, it's strange to me that people are still trying to defend these things while at the same time voting a certain way and advocating against that type of behavior. So that's really just my whole thing. It's just the hypocrisy internally within the party. And I know this happens across all parties. I'm not even going to pretend like the Democrats are perfect because they're far from it. They're far from it. However, I want us to start having conversations as parties and really looking at the people who are representing us, who are saying that they align with us and getting rid of them if it doesn't align, because I don't feel like it helps the party at all. That's my problem. It makes the party look bad when whoever the representative is, if you're saying one thing, but you're going out in public and you're behaving a certain way. And again, not being virtuous at all and just plain lying about it. Until we have film evidence, that's not somebody that I would want to align myself with because we don't have the same values. I will also percent accurate. And Andrew and Jeff, the point that you both are eliciting for me is um, just how entitled she must feel to have done this. I mean, maybe she's maybe she's done it in the past or, or is, is it the fact that being an elected official has really gone to her head and she thought that she could act with impunity, which is a whole different set of problems well, didn't so that she I'm say that kind of you know, do you know concerned. who i am or something like didn't she say that on the way yes, out she did. Yeah. yes she did yes she did you sure right, did right exactly flip people exactly. off too and i think that's the thing that will incense people more than even the incident right is that actually you have this elevated and lofty sense of yourself for no given reason when in fact you're supposed to be the servant of the people and the public will you know but but you're right rakim she did it with an impunity and there's a reason why She's not going to lose any support over, the, over this. The people who have supported her before this are still going to be supporting her. I think this kind of speaks to a larger uh, sea change that's happening on in the conservative movement. I mean, they did always position themselves as the party of traditional values. Then they elected Trump, who does not align with those values at all. And I really do think that the party is moving from this emphasis on traditional values to more 
pragmatism, pragmatism over principles. Is this person going to do what I want them to do? And I see the struggle happening because I see people going back and forth on the right about this who agree that what she did was wrong and we should be condemning it and others who are defending it. But I think we're going to see a shift on the right. It may take a few years, but there's going to be a shift from that traditional values that they say that they uphold to one that's more pragmatic. I mean, because the reason they're defending it, what are they saying exactly? Oh, she, who hasn't, you know, gotten felt up in a movie theater? Let he who has no sin cast the first stone. I'm saying all of this. And honestly, I think that that's where the movement is going. They're going towards, yeah, we prefer traditional values, but we recognize that not everybody's perfect, yada, yada, yada. And I'm not even saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that that's where it's going. I don't think that their politicians are going to be held to that standard as much as they were in the past. We're already seeing it happen. And I know I'm asking for a lot because I'm about to say, why can't they just be honest? But this is politics, y'all. So that that's silly of me to say. However, the cognitive dissonance is getting it's aspirational. Too- it's not silly. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. You're right. It is aspirational. But it's just I see what you're saying. I, I recognize that the party is definitely going through a major shift, but they need to catch up because you're saying one thing, you're legislating one way, and then you're living another way. It's too different right now. So they either need to make the complete shift and rewrite the Republican bylaws or whatever and redefine what the party is and who they are, or they need to get rid of people who are too far outside of the norm of what Republicanism, conservatism is. Well, there's also the... um it's something I don't really understand, but I, you know, I've, I've read a little bit on it, and apparently it's quite true that... Um, People love who are in power for the sake of the power, the more they can get away with things, the more they can pull the wool over and snow people. There's a thrill to that. You know, I think of like the Larry Craig thing from years ago, Senator Wide Stance. You know, it's the uh, the ability to deceive people. And that's a form of power and coercion. And that is apparently quite satisfying to a lot of people. I don't know if that's what's going on here, but, you know, in some cases, that's what's going on. The pretense of being the moral, virtuous conservative is all show hiding these horrible things underneath. The other thing we haven't talked a lot about, uh, Rakeem, you kind of mentioned one of your early comments is personal private life. Not in a theater. <laughs> Personal private life is not what you do in a crowded theater, as Amani keeps saying, with kids around. That's what you do on your couch at home or maybe in a car park somewhere on you know the side of the road or something like that. But in a crowded theater, that is no longer personal private life and certainly in a world where we know there are cameras everywhere. No, I agree. I mean, I knew less about the groping. I knew about the vaping, which was totally... <laughs> the groping part came out of left yeah. field, let me tell you. <laughs> that was totally inappropriate as well. But I just I just thought, you know, um, I was trying to think the, the other week, you know, I was just sitting up in the morning and you're all we were hearing about was the guy who escaped from the Pennsylvania penitentiary and how there was a national manhunt. And I was just like, you see, this is why we're not advancing as a country, because all of our attention and energy is focused on this particular topic. So when these kinds of, you know, sort of incidents of um I wouldn't, it's not even malfeasance because it's not a public act, but just kind of crude public behavior take place from a public official. And then we sort of launch into it and then we want to investigate what kind of person they are and how they hold up different things. Amani is exactly right to bring it up because the hypocrisy is so odious. And yet at the same time, I'm always like, uh, didn't we just find out that Ukraine is advancing a little further into Russia? Isn't that something to... And I know Amani can Amani can do both. So this is not a critique <laughs> right. of this topic. Amani but can a lot of people can't. Right. But as far as national media is concerned, you know, I have I have a critique. That's a good that is a very good point. And 
Dang, not me feeding into it myself. I, 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 <laughs> Rakeem, okay. I, I don't um, think you're feeding into it though, Amani. I mean, we, we, you can use these silly stories or what I call entertainment stories yeah. to illustrate deeper truths. And that, yeah. and that's what we're doing here. We're not yeah. obsessing over it, but, but yeah, I mean, to Rakeem's point, he's right. A lot of people don't do that. They just focus on, on the entertainment value and, and, and the funny part of it. Meanwhile, stuff is happening in Ukraine. And yet we're talking about Fetterman wearing hoodies and shorts. Oh I mean, it's, I mean, I, I get it. I mean, I get why people are, are mad at it, but it's like, okay, get mad at that and then move on to something important. I mean, that, right. that's, that's what we should be doing. Well, something Jeff that you, you brought up uh, was the issue of how Trump has really changed the landscape of what is the norm what is the protocol and then what's the response to it? Um, you know, being contrite used to be considered a virtue. And yeah. uh, especially, yeah. you know, on my side of the aisle, it particularly was considered a virtue. If somebody caught you doing something that was in violation of your esp- expressed norms, you know, you were supposed to say things like, I'm so sorry. You, yes, you're right. Thank you for helping me do better. <laughs> I can do better. Trump has upended all of that because, I mean, there's zero contrition for anything ever it's i'm gonna do it more whatever the thing is and when that gets rewarded you put you put somebody like a lauren bobert in the situation where now she's got to decide do i go the trump paradigm do i just try to you know go with it embrace it and act like it's no big deal and you know rabid defiance or do i go with the traditional norm of oh my god i'm so sorry yes i'm very embarrassed i made a terrible decision i'm sorry i lied about it and there seems to be a low level of favor for that reaction anymore, even though that's the one I don't know. That's the one I believe in. Then I, there's a vitriolic reaction to it nowadays. I remember when Joe Rogan, those videos came about with him using the N word and he actually apologized for it. And Joe Rogan's not the type who's going to apologize if he doesn't mean it. Like he'll tell you where he can shove it. But if he actually thinks he did something wrong, he apologized. And I remember a lot of people on the right got mad at him for that because you're right. There is a paradigm shift that was, you know, brought on by Trump and, and others. But right. yeah, I mean, that, that that's that's an issue. That, that's a huge issue. He completely changed the fabric of the party as far as that is concerned, because, yeah, he has kind of set the standard that he's the big, tough guy. And, you know, I'm perfect. And he's he's likened himself to dang Jesus. Like he says crazy stuff all the time about how, you know, he's perfect and void of flaws. And everybody seems to have adapted that mentality instead of just like you said, just being an honest, real human person. And that's probably like my main critique of all of this is like, Politics has gotten so dang theatrical, y'all, that we are, we're up here. This woman was really going to sit here and lie through her teeth until we got it on film. And that, those are the people who are representing us. And that is my overall point is like, are these the quote unquote people that you want to be responsible for? Allegedly, you know, she represents hundreds of thousands of people in her district. She is making laws and representing these people. She's supposed to be a leader and she can't even be honest like and of course these people lie every day but in a situation like that where she knew like girl we see you babe we see you (laughs) she was still going to lie that shows a testament to her character and is that the type of character that we want in somebody who's supposed to be making decisions on our behalf i think not man that sunset is gorgeous grill patio sunset hard to get better than that Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. 
Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, I am going to advocate for upending the Constitution. You ready? I know, I know this is a crazy idea. I know it can't be done. I know in advance. Nevertheless, I wish I could make political polls illegal. If I could wave my magic legislative wand and somehow carve out a big asterisk to the First Amendment, I would make it illegal to do political polling, to call, to anything, and then illegal at the very least to publish political polls. And, and I'll tell you, here's, here's my simple reason why. It's not that they're inaccurate, though they are. It's not that they're, there's all kinds of things to be said. For me, I just want to talk about the people, their expertise, their judgment, and their views. And the more we focus on the polling and who's ahead and who's behind and where the horse race stands and all of this, we completely distract from the only question that really matters is, is that a good person to vote for? And instead of talking about whether their positions make sense or they're articulate or consistent or decent people or whether I trust them with my kids or my money or anything else, we're talking about who's up eight points or 20 points or 40 points or whatever it is today in the case of Trump. And it drives me crazy because instead of voting for the people that you want to see elected, you vote for the least obnoxious alternative among the ones that you think are viable based on what the polls have told you. So aside from Andrew, the constitutional always, problem, what do you think? Should we get rid of polling? I was going to say, Andrew, as always, you have drawn on an ancient and virtuous source of, of theory. Uh, you reminded me in describing that there's a philosopher, Benjamin Constant, but his, his basic idea was actually quite similar to what you're saying, which is on the most fundamental and basic of problems, it doesn't actually make sense to have groups communicate <laughs> and reveal <laughs> what it is that they think about it beforehand. So the example he would give is that if all four of us were asked what was, you know, I don't know, seven times six, right? Let's just use something that may not be easy for everybody if you don't remember your times tables. Well, if we all went off into our separate corners and we came back, we probably all get the answer, show up, say, okay, here's 42. But if we were all sitting around trying to figure it out, for some reason, all of the emotional pieces and the other distractions come in. And suddenly the fact that Andrew says, no, 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 it's 43 starts to take hold of Jeff, who's like, no, I know it's 42. But because Rakeem can't do math at all, he says, I think it's 43, too, jumps in right immediately. And now Jeff's like, well, wait a minute. I thought it was 42. But when's the last time I had to look at a times table? And Amani is <laughs> the only one sitting over there like, I don't care what you all say it's 42. And that's what I'm going to put down. So suddenly you've got three people voting for 43 and one person voting for 42 when if they had done it all separately. So why do I bring that up? I think you're exactly right. If we didn't know who was in the lead, we would probably cast our vote with what was our best estimate of whether or not that person represented the things that we thought were most important to political office. But because we know that Donald Trump is in the lead, that Joe Biden is in the lead, et cetera, we shut off the parts of our brain that consider the most important questions in politics. Yeah. You know, that's very interesting because I mean, and I in general don't necessarily have problems with polls, but I do recognize 
the issue there. I mean, there is that marketing concept of social proof. I mean, if you see that most people are going in one direction, you're more likely to go in that direction without really thinking critically about it because you don't want to go against the crowd. So I, I definitely see that point. I'm always the guy who's I like, think- no, go left here. We go left here. Y'all are wrong. <laughs> I think polling is more useful for the candidates than it is for the constituents who are voting, because from a campaigning standpoint, I always encourage people to do polls because I hate to break it to y'all. But when people are deciding to run for office, a lot of these people don't even know what their constituents want. They don't know what platform they should be running on. They don't even know what they should be talking about. So we implore them, you should probably ask the people around you what it is they want. What are the values that are important to them? What do they want to see done or changed in this district? So I always encourage people to poll just so they can be a better candidate and at least be trying to communicate to the people that they're trying to represent. So on that side of it, I think polling is very valuable because you, it really can I, can does I pause you, Imani? Can I pause okay. you? Because mm-hmm. it sounds like what you're telling me is you teach people who are getting ready to run for office how to tell people what they want to hear instead of how to tell people what they really believe. I know that's an uncharitable rephrase, but am I, am I, am I missing something here? How did Lauren Boebert get to where she is? I think I'm doing the Lord's work because if it were up to a lot of these people, they would be running on such individualistic issues that nobody cares about, but them, like some people will decide to run. They'll run because the local Piggly Wiggly needs to change the color from red to green. They want to paint Piggly Wiggly green. And they'll be like, this is going to be my platform. And it's like, nobody cares about that. But you, Sarah, you're the only one in your entire district who cares about that at all. So I tell them you should poll to see like how you can better represent the people. But Andrew, when you put it that way, technically, yes, but I believe I'm doing it for the right reason. <laughs> and, and then that's kind of that kind of brings up the question. Are we talking about eliminating only polls that show where people where politicians rank or all polls, even ones that might help give people insight into what people want? Because I know that's neat. I thought you meant I mean, I, race, I mean yeah. yeah. And honestly, I've been criticizing some of the libertarian candidates for, for president, because when I'm hearing them in these interviews, they're talking about like ESG and stuff <laughs> like that. That does have a level of importance to it. But ain't nobody thinking about ESG when they go to the grocery store and they're dealing with inflation and high gas prices. So to me, it's like if libertarians want to start making a splash, you got to start talking about the issues people care about. And we already have polling that shows that. (laughs) Well, I'll take I'll take a big if I can get step one, I can probably simmer down enough to not have to ask for step two. But, you know, if I can if I can get step one of getting no public production of polling data. Now, again, I, I absolutely know this is an impossible achievement, but, you know, I wouldn't I used to would have said, uh, you know, if you can get radio, TV uh, and print to stop talking about polling numbers, that would be a huge step in the right direction, because then they be, they would be forced to report on the actual uh, substance of things in people's character rather than on the horse race. Um, you know, should I would I allow polling for the candidates value for the donors to figure out who to say I'm I'm. That's step two. I'm not going to fight so much about that one, but step one is to me the big problem. I think it's more of an indictment on just the news cycle and how they choose to cover elections, because if they decided themselves to spend less time on polling, if you want to flash the poll on the screen for the first 10 seconds of the segment and then move on to the meat of the race and the platform and the policy issues and the character of the candidates, then I think we can kind of kill two birds with one stone. Yes, I guess you want people to know where they fall or where they rank. However, a a side note, we can bring ranked choice voting. That's a big thing that's been successful. Love you for bringing it up. Yes, ma'am. 
and all these other places, we really should be doing ranked choice voting, but that's a whole nother conversation. Imagine that world where you can yeah. literally go into the poll and vote exactly what your preference is, one, two, three, four, five, and you didn't have to ask that crazy question, well, you know, I know this person cannot win, so I, even though I love them, I'm not going to vote for them, because if you had that world, suddenly the polling doesn't really matter so much. Because right. you, you right now, you I mean, sadly, as a defense mechanism, you have to think about polls because you have to think about whether I'm casting my vote away or whether I'm casting it for somebody who has a viable chance. That's a rational response to an insane situation. If we got rid of the polling and we got rid of only pick one person, if we did rank choice voting, then all of a sudden the demand for polling would probably diminish, too. Well, actually, and now that you put it the, that way, I think ranked choice voting would actually probably accomplish a lot of what you want to accomplish, Andrew, by uh, <laughs> uh, subverting the Constitution. I think ranked choice <laughs> voting might be the issue because here's the thing. If you have ranked choice voting everywhere, it makes it a lot harder for Team Red and Team Blue to use fear to, to terrify you into voting for them so that so you're not going in to, to vote against somebody because you're like, oh, I really can't have the Democrat in office. Oh, I really can't have the Republican in office. Well, if there's ranked choice voting then that takes that that minimizes a lot of that 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 fear mongering that they're able to do to great effect every single election season and it's a good for parties too there's a love affair of ranked choice voting that i don't share maybe i had some recent experiences in new york city that suggest to me that this is not all the panacea that one might expect but i do want to say about polls what cracks me up is that you know the inherent assumption in polling public polling for political candidates is the wisdom of crowds Mm -hmm. And yet they do these polls and we've all been there and moments afterwards in order to um, not so much validate the poll, but assess the poll. They go and talk to the ordinary voter. And when you realize that that ordinary voter is in the majority, (laughs) you suddenly have a lot of questions about that poll and whether or not it accurately reflects the best judgment of the people. And so um, I guess maybe an amendment to what you're asking, Andrew, is, you know, could we poll uh, you know, the group of concerned, what is it, the League of Concerned Scientists on a particular issue and then see how that see who they would vote for as it pertains to climate change, uh, if that were the primary issue or the League of Concerned Economists um, who are thinking about X or Y or Z issue. I mean, you could have a series of polls that did not assume the wisdom of crowds, which I do not trust actually, mm-hmm. uh, that were somehow more revealing to you and informative, because then you could say, yeah, I don't have time to get up to speed. Let's say Jeff is over there becoming an expert on the minimum wage or on interest rates. I don't have time to figure all that out. So let's get a bunch of Jeffs and similar people who know something about that issue to express. If this is something that you care about, then this would be the candidate for you. That might be preferable to, again, just the horse race who's ahead. So one you know, the, I want uh, to say that sounded very elitist of you, but it kind of reminds me of a quote from Atticus Finch. <laughs> and then you Finch. came around. <laughs> well, well, no, but, he, but the thing is, like Atticus Finch said, a person is smart, people are dumb. And that really lends credibility to what you just said, Rakeem. I, I can't really dispute a lot of it. <laughs> I'm telling you. So one of the things about this that it helps me understand the issue a little bit. There was a great book uh, several years ago by Stephen L. Carter in which he talked about the phenomenon of measurism and the idea that we have somehow cultivated a culture in which it's it's more authoritative if you can put a number on it. It's more meaningful and significant if you can measure it, if you can put uh, data with facts, you know, that, that's somehow more real. And obviously a poll gives the appearance 
of information, right? It's like mentioning the stock, you know, the Dow Jones Industrial Average that that gives the illusion of information as if that means mm-hmm. anything to anybody who's actually got a stock portfolio. And it doesn't because it depends on the individual stocks you own, right? So measurism in this case it's this bias that we have towards thinking that if I'm on TV and I'm telling people about numbers, then I'm doing the news work. When the reality is it becomes a substitute for doing the news work because of this error of thinking that just because there's numbers attached, that that's somehow more meaningful. And it's so much of the time, it's exactly the opposite of what's meaningful. That's true. And a lot of, I'm sorry, I was about to say a lot of the content of those polls, it's not a lot. Like, do you want to choose this person? Yes or no? <laughs> if, if you have any other options, who would it be? This person? Like, there's not a lot of meat to it. So we really don't even get any insight on why the numbers are the way they are, because uh, most polls are only, what, three to five questions. So it's only so much information you can even get in the first place. So you're correct. It's very interesting that we're making so many giant decisions, especially for these federal elections, based on like three questions. (laughs) But even along with that, polls can be very deceptive depending on how they're done. And a lot of people don't understand it. They just go along with it because of of the measurism that you said, Andrew. And and here's one example that really proves that what Andrew was saying might be right. I remember back in 2020, Rasmussen came out two or three polls saying that Trump had between 30 and 40 percent approval in the black community and conservatives were celebrating this up. They're like, yeah, he's going to get way more of the black vote. And I'm like, guys are crazy. Put down the crack pipe. You know, that's not true. You know, that's not true. But yet these numbers come out telling you what you want to hear and you you just go along with it. That's just one example. But there are a lot of examples of how polls and surveys can be used to promote a deceptive narrative. There's, to me, this is wrapped up in a lot of things. But one, and we haven't even mentioned it yet, is the accuracy of polls. Like, you know, if I get a call, do you have a minute? No, I don't even answer the phone most of the time. Everybody I know has a cell phone, not a landline. Everybody, and there's laws restricting access. You know, everybody I know doesn't really have time for these polls. I don't know even how they pretend to get accurate information. And, you know, as the evidence seems to indicate, 2016, they got it wrong. 2020, they got it wrong. Red wave, non-existent. You know, it's at some point, it's not just the philosophical objection that I'm raising about this being not the meaningful stuff. And it's not the structural problems of the way we vote versus a potential, you know, instant runoff or ranked choice voting. It's really just why do we keep trusting what we know is a broken thermometer? They are terrible thermometers. It's true. I was just talking to my business partner earlier today about polling. So it's very fun that we're talking about this. So we were just talking about, let's say we call a thousand people in a district. We know we're only going to get a 10% answer rate. And of those 10% of people who answer the phone, only 10% of those people are even going to stay on the phone long enough to answer our questions. So we'll have people that pay for a thousand person poll and we only talk to like five people. So this is the type of data that we're basing decisions off of. Yes, you called a thousand people and these were the responses. Five people picked up and answered your questions. That's the truth of the situation. And what is that doing to our democracy? Right. I mean, if if polls carry so much significance over people's ideas of what they're supposed to believe or who they're supposed to support or who's winning or whatever, it feels very subversive to me of having a robust discussion amongst people about the issues, the candidates, their qualifications and all that kind of stuff. And it's all because they're so unreliable. It seems like we've now sort of just allowed because nobody's been willing to take up the cause and fight for it. We've allowed, you know, your crazy drunk uncle to decide what people vote for. If the polls are your crazy drunk uncle in my yeah, weird I metaphor here. Substitution, Andrew, of um, 
public opinion for public sentiment. That's maybe the best way I can put it, which is as we were trying to figure out how to govern a democracy in the 20th century and these tools became available to us, as you described with measurement, we suddenly said, well, the politician or the elected official, the state statesperson no longer has the responsibility of sussing out what the public sentiment is through multiple conversations and a committed public life. What we can do is just have the scientists, have the pseudoscientists capture it for you yeah. and therefore reveal it to the politicians and share with them what they ought to do on X, Y, or Z topic. Uh, but headed in another direction, I think you're right, which is that we've lost something about, um, we recognize the polls to be wrong, but we're addicted to them because they give us that sense of public opinion. But if we got back to what's society feeling and asking other ways about measuring that and how to figure out how to be in touch with it, we might enrich ourselves politically. You mean we should talk to each other and have conversations and learn where we're coming from and have more than just a couple of hundred characters on some platform that nobody can figure out the name to anymore? Is Are, are you really saying something like that, Rakeem? No, I barely have time for this podcast. I mean, <laughs> but now I feel guilty. You made me feel guilty, Andrew, because I write about polls a lot. And now you're making me feel like I'm an irresponsible journalist and commentator. And now I have to rethink my whole thing. <laughs> he did it to Amani at the beginning of the call. So he was on eventually. <laughs> hey, if I can expand the layers of uh, self-criticism and guilt to all parties, then I mean, I feel like I'm winning in this case. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So I don't want you all to feel like I don't listen to our conversations. I go back and I sit there and I think, how might that inform a future discussion? And though I was on the other side of Amani a few weeks ago, however many weeks where we were talking about how the party has just chosen Joe Biden, I think actually I may have come around. There are going to be two oh, reasons for the this, Lord, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> so I was reading this really excellent article uh, in a, I try to find these sort of out of the way um, publications. And this one is called Unpopulous. It's probably something that Jeff would love. Before you get started, can I just pause you? The articles that you send us are universally five to eight times as long as anything we send around. Okay, I don't know whether you were just like raised in the crib on the Atlantic or what the issue is that you don't feel comfortable no, under you, 2,000 a, words. But sheet, And this person will probably be proud that I've, I'm shouting them out. There's a, there's a guy who aggregates what he calls the best of nonfiction or the best of journalism, and I get it every Sunday. And I use that to find the topics. It's about okay. 20 different issues. He highlights five at the top that are like must reads, which were like the Mitt Romney excerpt. And then he has another 20, which are like suggestory. One was about Tom Soule's new book. So, Jeff, you might want to consult that. But I'll send it around. So I always go. Please do. Sounds delightful. Yeah. yeah. But so this one uh, was pretty cool um, because he captured something that I didn't quite understand. And I'll be brief. The basic idea was like, what was the connection between Reaganism and Trumpism? And what he argues is it's basically the Jesse James phenomenon. Like Americans like bad guys. They like people who seem like they're going to blow things up all in defense of whatever the higher ideal is, right? So as long as they're aligned with your higher ideal, you're like, blow it up. And I, for those of you who like the, um, 
what's it called? Uh, Yellowstone sort of true. Now it's become a trilogy of circus. There are prequels and whatnot. I'm watching the 1922 one. There are a bunch of characters who are just blowing stuff up. And I appreciate it. Cause I'm like, that's what it takes in order to secure the West. You know what I mean? And usually it's the native Americans that I'm rooting for, but you get my point anyway. So anyway, this Jesse James phenomenon, it really captured me. And I thought, okay, this is why they're behind this guy, right? It's something I actually can relate to. I understand that you actually don't need to be aligned with the moral point of view when you think that what the person's trying to do is ultimately in the best interest. It's that sort of Batman phenomenon. And that led me to think to Amani's point, like, well, Joe Biden ain't our Robin Hood. I mean, I could admit that Joe Biden is not (laughs) our Robin Hood. And so I started to ask myself, like, do Democrats need a Robin Hood? And I'll make one last point on this and then, you know, hear from all of you, which was, you know, there's this whole kind of rigmarole about Bidenomics and how well the country is doing while people don't feel like the country is doing well. And I used to be all in the stats around economics and inequality and poverty. And by a lot of the traditional stats, I was like, he's doing well, but I understand why people feel what they're feeling. Their wages aren't rising. Corporate profits are booming. So who's benefiting from this economy and how is it that folks are feeling that? So again, it led me back to well, a lot of people on the left are going to feel like they need a Robin Hood. They're going to want their Trump equivalent. It's not Jesse James just shooting the innocent people. Let's be clear. There's a difference, but it is an outlaw of some sort. And so I'm back. I'm ready to reconsider my prior opinion. <laughs> Hit me. Hit me in my God mind. is good. Amen. <laughs> Prayers work Amen. for you, right? Yes. Y'all know the song. I need a hero. That that is what the left needs. And we are all thank you. First of all, Rakeem, I'm just so happy that you said that. But yes, we can all agree. That's not Joe. This is my point. And this is the hill that I will continue to die on. Joe Biden has been in federal elected office for 55 zero years. Okay, let's put that into perspective. Let's digest that and swallow it and hold that in our hearts and our spirits for a moment. He's, He's almost old enough to be president. <laughs> almost old enough to be Literally, y'all. And he's not it. He's not what you're describing. He's not the, the renegade candidate. He's not the one that's going to do any sort of change. If anything, Biden is the establishment. Biden is politics of the past 50 years. It's been him this entire time. So us even trying to pretend or perpetuate that he is bringing some sort of, you know, FDR, Bidenomics, he's changing the political landscape. It's just completely disingenuous. What is this voice you just threw on? <laughs> I don't know what it is. But Biden is literally the fabric of the American political system of the past 50 years and then some. He is the problem. So it's like that Spider-Man meme where we're just looking around pointing fingers like, who is it? Sir, it's you. You've been here. You the one been passing laws for 50 years. You're the one who made the country or part of the one who made the country the way that it is this entire time. So, yes, we need some sort of Robin Hood. We need someone else because Biden's had 50 years to show us what he can do. And it's a whole lot of stuff that's really not much. But wasn't that his selling point? Wasn't that Biden's selling point? I know I'm the lima bean paste of politics, but I'm not Trump. Trump's the crazy one. I know I know he's fun and exciting and loud and brash and obnoxious. I'm safe. I'm not going to harm anybody. Come on. You'll have regulars after you try me. It'll be good. That was his selling point, wasn't it? Yeah, but but, yeah, but the Democrats had a Trump and they would have gone with that over Biden in a heartbeat. I I really believe that. And I think you're you're right, Rakim, about the whole outlaw trope. Uh, You know, when Trump came on the scene, he he was I'll go full nerd here. He wasn't like Batman, like a vigilante. He was more of an anti-hero, like the Punisher or like Wolverine. 
People love anti-heroes, people who are going to bend or even break the rules to, to do something quote unquote good. Right. And I understand why Democrats would want that. I mean, even in libertarian circles, we talk about who's going to be our next Ron Paul or what have you. And I kind of struggle with that. I, I struggle with that because I, I, I'm not convinced that a movement having just one solitary, strong leader is a good idea because like you see what's happening on the right. Like it's it's, Trump still has a lot of control over the conservative movement. And what I want to trust one person with that level of power, I'm not sure, but I do understand the desire to have something like that, but I'm just not sure how good that is for the country. I definitely don't think it's good. I'm just trying, I was trying to capture a sentiment because you know, where Amani always, she's always going to go a little to the left of me. And so I'm not saying Joe Biden has been a bad president. I think he's been a good president, but what I'm saying is, I'm coming back to myself, which is the pragmatic part that wants to win and saying, if there's something going on in the population at this moment where they're looking for antiheroes, they're looking for vigilantes, they're looking for Robin Hood kind of characters because they feel that the system is just not for them. I think there are a lot of dangers in that. All the dangers attendant in the uh, last presidency under Donald Trump. At the same time, I think we would be fools to ignore it. Yes. When is the key word? You know, what I was thinking about while you were kind of laying out the premise of the story, Rakeem, is we've had 70 years, I'm doing my rough math on this, but maybe more, of the most popular movies and TV shows are about the reluctant, you know, vigilante drawn into the fight against his will. He just wants to stay on his farm. He just wants to stay in his home. And then something terrible happens. And suddenly, you know, you've got the outlaw Josie Wales or you've got John Wick or whomever, even if even if it's not a superhero, you know, it's like Batman without a utility belt. You got, you know, he's in there doing the thing that we all wish we could do, because even though we say we believe in law and order, we don't portray law and order. Not really. As the hero in the movies, you know, the cops we like are the ones who rough up the bad guy and take matters into their own hands. And, you know, we've got how many franchise expansions of the Expendables, this ridiculous, outrageous version of what we're supposed to believe in, which is do the right thing the right way, following the right rules. And Trump has captured that. I mean, he is absolutely he's the, you know, the the vigilante anti-hero. He's the heel and the good guy all at the same time. And that's the captivating persona. That's part of what makes him appealing. You see this with around the world historically when people accumulate way too much power, cult of personality types is, you know, you can project all your hopes and your dreams and your fears and your angers and everything onto them. And that's appealing to people. And I think we've done a really poor job through our, in part, entertainment media of reinforcing that, that that's a good thing. We reward that persona ideal again and again and again. And I'm captivated too. You know, Han Solo was far better than Luke, you know? And you know, and I really think this comes from a widespread dissatisfaction with the establishment. Like you brought up Biden. Biden is the establishment. You know, the, the Mitt Romneys of the world are the establishment. And the rise of populism has been part of this backlash against the establishment. So if somebody can position themselves as, yeah, I'm your antihero, I'm going to take down the establishment, I'm going to, to do what needs to be done in Washington, then that person can get a lot of support. They don't have to have a lot of substance. They don't really have to know much, they, but they can get elected by doing that. I mean, we were talking about Lauren Boebert earlier. We, we've got others on the right and the left who have been able to, to capture 
that sentiment that people are just tired of our government not doing what it says it's going to do for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And I think that's my major critique with the Democratic Party, because we can look on the Republican Party side and you still see some of the old fashioned Republicans. But you see there's a lot of populist Republicans in the mix because the party has attached to that idea that that's just kind of where the country is going as far as who they want to represent them. And the Democratic side isn't doing such a good job of throwing in those different type of candidates. They continue to run the same type of candidate over and over and over again. It doesn't get them very far with their base. And they've kind of pigeonholed themselves into this position of the party who says they're going to deliver, says all these things. They kind of got the same script every election. Like they are not keeping up with where the country is moving. And that's why in my heart of hearts, I genuinely believe I believe that Joe Biden is going to lose. I really believe he's going to lose because the party is very vastly underestimating that temperature in the country, those type of voters who want to see something else. I think it was silly. I think it was foolish for them not to choose somebody else or at least in the few years where he was president to not kind of prep somebody up to take his position and him even running a second time makes no sense. And if you go back to the 2020 uh, campaign, they even said he was going to be a one term president. It was never even their initial agenda to have him run again. So I don't know what happened strategically with the leadership of the party. But that's what's lacking because it's just not keeping up with where the country is today. And I think that's ultimately what's going to lose them the election is because they do want something else. They want that populist. They want the anti-hero. They want something to shake the system up. I don't think think, Biden's ultimately going to lose. I think that the country still likes Captain America. Right. He's not any of our favorite Avenger, but I think the country still, when it comes down to it, is kind of like. (laughs) (laughs) At best, he's Bucky. Okay. At best, Obama was Captain America. At best, uh, Biden is Bucky, right? You think we're voting for Alfred? Is that what I'm being told? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I I think that's spot on. Yeah. You you are voting for Alfred. But here's the thing this whole thing is is global. I mean, the Brexit movement was a very populist movement against Mm -hmm. the establishment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. like Javier Millet in Argentina, who's running for president, and he's ahead in the polls. If he gets elected, he will be the very first libertarian head of state in, in the world. And there's a reason for that. So I think even if whether Biden wins or loses, I think Democrats are going to have their anti-hero at some point. They're going to have maybe like a younger Bernie Sanders type or a younger person who has enough charisma to galvanize and to attack the establishment. So even if it's not happening as soon as it has for the right, it is going to happen on the left. I guarantee it at some point. And that was kind of my question is, I thought Bernie was your Robin Hood. I mean, if if ever there were a person who embodied the views of Robin Hood, take from the rich, give to the poor, redistribute the wealth from the unjust system. I mean, it's not just the metaphor, but it that's who he was. That's why he almost and probably should have won the nomination is because he did represent that. Even he's not young. He might not be dashing, but he's captivating. Right. He's also not an anti-hero, right? Like Bernie doesn't say he might say we should tax the rich. He hasn't yet said we should like expropriate their wealth. I know Jeff will say that that's the same thing, but I'm just saying there's some legal means to take people's money, however immoral it might be. And there's some illegal means to take people's money. <laughs> right. <laughs> but my point is, I don't know that Bernie quite rises there, but I think he did. He was the best person to capture the sentiment of the time. Um, and my question really is, this goes maybe back to Amani is, I don't know that we actually have anybody, at least at present, who captures the same sentiment, who gives you that sense of edge. Like I said, the Robin Hood character who makes you think 
know what? They're going to break a few rules. The Lyndon Johnson kind of thing. Like, there going to be a few rules that need to be broken in order to make this thing work. And they're willing to do it. But I do think that some substantial part of the country is there where they think that things have to change fundamentally. And to the point that you and Jeff often make that the two party system has so captured our politics and our possibility by result of that, that increasingly you're going to see people say like, no, we're just not going to abide this process. Yeah. And I think there's going to be a come like Jeff is saying, regardless of what the Democratic Party wants to happen or how they want things to be, things are going to change, particularly if they lose this election. They can't keep this stuff up. And that's a part of why I secretly I love the, you know, y'all gonna cancel me. I want them to lose, not because I want Trump to win, but I want them to lose because I want them to learn this lesson. I think it's like telling you, you, we learn nothing when we lose. (laughs) (laughs) That is never a guarantee of anything. We learn nothing. So you you go back home and cry. You don't go back home and think. Is that what you're telling me? People were smarter. That's all we ever say. (laughs) No, it's like when you tell a kid the oven is that that stove is hot. Don't touch it. And then they'd be like, I'm gonna touch the stove. And then it's not until they burn their hand that they stop touching the stove. I think that's the problem with the Democratic leadership right now. I don't think they really took heed to what happened in 2016 when you put an unlikable, non-exciting establishment candidate up against somebody like Donald Trump. It doesn't work. It only works last time because Trump did so bad as president when he was there. But now that the time has kind of worn off, you know, people aren't as hot and heavy and as mad at Trump right now as they were back in 2020 when the election was going on. They're going to they're they're using the same losing strategy that they've used before. So that's really my biggest it's not a fear. It's really my biggest uh it's my what's what I think. I think that's gonna happen. I think that they're going to lose and then they're gonna hopefully use that as some sort of lesson so that they can develop leadership within the party and build up some new party leaders. Because my thing is this, what are y'all gonna do when Joe Biden die? He's not gonna live forever. What's the plan after that? Are we just going to have no presidents? Like, what is there no party leader after Joe Biden? It doesn't make any sense to base your entire party around somebody that old and who already needs to retire just anyway. So I don't know. I'm hoping that this changes their minds. It's going to be Gavin Newsom. What do you think of that? Oh, here we go. Establishment candidate after establishment yeah. candidate after establishment <laughs> candidate. Nobody wants that. And I don't. Nancy. Well, I- no one wants that. This, I think this is the point I'm really trying to make, which is isn't isn't AOC about, this though? I mean, isn't there was no, at least there's for a no while rule breaking? That's my thing. There's no what? I, I wonder if the left there's no rule breaking. Oh, okay. You know, like when you that's what I'm really trying to push on, which is I actually think that what Amani is asking for and what parts of the country are calling for are people who are willing to say like crack the system in some way in order to achieve your outcome. And I literally mean that, that there's something that they're willing to ignore, some part of the Constitution, back to our other conversations about the good governor of New Mexico, some that they are, the left is just as much as the right looking for that. But I think it's dangerous, actually. And that's maybe where I I want to say, I actually think it's dangerous, right? The fact that the right has done it because it's appealing to a certain appetite and Trump could capture it doesn't mean it's a reason for the left to do it. But I also think we can't ignore that that's where the country is headed. 